what I found with my friend Greg is that if I slowed down to his pace, instead of, I, I was walking down the street and I found I was about suddenly 20 metres in front of him because I was going somewhere and he was actually intent on enjoying what he was seeing around him. And I slowed down and started to walk with him. And as I walked with him, we started to share what we were seeing. He'd sort of, he'd see very different things to me. Slowing down has been part and parcel of the last couple of decades of Rob Nichols' life. Downward mobility and finding humanity, compassion, love and dignity in the eyes of the other has been part of his life in his search for what it means to love and be loved. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. I'm Sam and today I catch up with my friend Rob Nichols. Our paths crossed when I needed to find out how to include and create a place of belonging for people with a disability in the faith community that I was a part of. Every time I chat with him, it's a delight because his life is filled with stories of what it means to be human. And this time it's no different. Say, grab yourself a cuppa for another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. Rob, our podcast is called Conversations with Earl Grey, where we chat with people over a cup of Earl Grey, but my Earl Grey has turned into a cup of red wine uh, this evening. Um, if you could describe yourself as a beverage, what would it be? Oh, that probably does depend on the time of day, Sam. So early in the morning or earlier in the morning, it'll be black coffee. Uh, about this time of night, it's probably more likely to be a red wine or on special occasions, a nice bottle, a nice glass of whiskey. Well, there you go. And tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I uh, I had the very good fortune going back oh, 40 something years now to um, kind of stumble into working with people with uh, with a disability, particularly an intellectual disability, and um, uh, just by starting out as a volunteer and realizing that this seemed to really uh, click for me. There's something about connecting with people um, that. Uh, with a disability that seemed to sort of bring life for me and um, I seemed to be able to be perhaps a bit helpful as well. So that was that was back in Canberra and uh, I pursued that uh, through to becoming, you know, working with Wesley Mission here in Melbourne for many years and um, that brought me into contact with a lot of other groups and services from aged care to um, homelessness and mental health as well as disability and uh, moved through in different kinds of ways. I, I actually, as you said, mentioned before, I worked in international development around the area of uh, disability and particularly disability in church. So that was part of my role with CBM was actually connecting with churches to talk about um, 
the inclusion of people with disabilities in church life, but also talk about the work that CBM does internationally. And then I um, started working with, for, for, for about 40 odd years, I have been involved with LASH, generally as a volunteer. Um, but uh, uh, about two years ago, I actually started working for LASH in a paid kind of role as a community leader. But that didn't last for all that long because my heart decided to attack me and uh, tell me that it was time to stop doing that. And uh, so I'm back as a volunteer now mm. and leading a quieter life. Yeah, because we, we, we both met um, in kind of the disability space. Um, tell me, what, what drew you to disability? Well, at, at first it was just a simple search. I was working as a public servant straight after graduating. Uh, in in uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics, so survey kind of work, which was fun and uh, in some ways enjoyed it, but in other ways felt I couldn't understand why I'd be doing this for very long. I thought there must be something perhaps more people-oriented, I suppose. And so uh, having a degree in psychology, I thought, well, I'll, I'll look around and try some different things. And I volunteered for two years with a disability organisation in Canberra. And it really... Um, changed my life not to you know not to exaggerate it because it actually did change my life there's something quite significant about the um, group of people that I hung out with every fortnight for a for a picnic down by the lake how did it change your life I think um, there's probably a lot more, to, bigger story to tell about my life, but I was perhaps a very troubled 28-year-old at that stage. I, I, uh, uh, there's a history of alcohol in our family, and that was kind of one of my troubles, and um, just a sense of discontent, and I could see myself endangering all kinds of things, including my marriage. I was just newly married at that point. And, um, and I, I think that came back down to somehow something about how I felt about myself. And I realised that as I sat with these guys um, and and turned out to be very unreliable, I have to say. I, I was kind of one of these you know people who committed to, I'll pick you up on Saturday at 1 o'clock or whatever it was, or a bit earlier, maybe 11 o'clock. And then about 10 o'clock I'd be dragging myself out of bed thinking, I don't want to do this. So I'd ring up and say, I'm sick, sorry, I can't make it. And then when I did turn up the next time round, everyone was just really nice to me and, and welcomed me and uh, my unreliability didn't seem to count against me. So there was something which touched me in that uh, beautiful acceptance and, um, and it took me a while to realise what it was. You know, I just sort of th thought there's something happening here and I don't... I can't put my finger on it. Um, but as I, as over time, I thought, I feel like I'm just being accepted for who I am, and I don't have to pretend to be anything other than who I am. And so my unreliability and my craziness just seem to be fine. That acceptance made a, made a big difference. To you. Yeah, I think s s same in terms of my interactions 
and my friendships with with people with intellectual disabilities and definitely people uh, within um, on, on the autism spectrum um, and people with, with, with Down syndrome, um, there is just a... If they like you, they like you. If they don't like you, mm. they'll tell mm. you they don't like you and you don't have to prove anything to them. What did you learn from that? Because I learned heaps. But what did you learn from that? Well, I've, I've, I've written, I've started writing down stories for over those years and uh, there's so many lessons I learned. I think one was definitely, and I think that initial lesson was, was, was something about um, putting on this false self uh, was unnecessary. That, you know, that I could find acceptance and be who I really was. Not that I, I you know, I, I say it carefully because I'm not, I don't think I suddenly switched on and became the real me in that moment. You know, I think that was just, it was a sort of scratch, a bit of a scratching off of some of the external false self and some, some of that started to come through. So uh, I've, I realised that it was possible to, um, to be your real self and connect with people and, and I realised that the people who I thought may not be um, very um, intelligent in terms of IQ or intelligent in terms of, I suppose, all, all kinds of um, living in the world with all, you know, all the things that, are, that that's part of, had a relational intelligence uh, that I didn't have. Yeah, tell us more about that relational intelligence because because we would consider say autism autism spectrum disorder as a personality and also a social disorder and so we perhaps on surface level we would think that relationships perhaps are them are foreign but you're saying the opposite I'm saying the opposite, and, and, and I think I'm differentiating between social intelligence and, and relational intelligence. So the, the, the people that I, was, that I was spending time with didn't necessarily have the social skills that would enable them to um, you know, participate in some of the occasions that are part of you know, our social life, um, but they had the emotional kind of intelligence which um, meant that any pretense I would put on was seen straight through. I, I think it came from, I mean, in all sorts of areas, but I think of one particular area which I've seen a lot is a, a sensitivity to um, a pretense that I wanted to get to know them. You know, that if I was, if I was pretending that I was just there and I was really, I didn't want to be there at all, and I didn't like them at all, that would be picked up in a flash. And I think that's out of a lifetime of being rejected by people. So there's a sensitivity to rejection that just, you know, pings immediately. Uh, whereas um, um, perhaps, perhaps my state of, of feeling a bit the same as them, perhaps, you know, that I had experienced some rejection and a sense of... Um, of you know not thinking much of myself 
And so I wasn't like that at all. You know, I was I was kind of eager to be friends, you know, <laughs> and um, and that was kind of that meant the doors are open. If you're eager to be friends, so are we. I'm picking up. I think Jean Vanier. I think we're we're diving into Jean Vanier already. Uh, but I just I just want to touch on what you said there about about pretense and and seeing people with disabilities because I think John Vanier picks up that why so many of neurotypical people um, have difficulty relating with people with disabilities is that we see our own helplessness behind the mask in the face of someone with a disability and we are scared actually to confront our own helplessness. That's what he writes. It's, it is very, it's very threatening uh, to, to meet um, someone who's completely vulnerable when we, we know that behind our shield there's vulnerability of our own. You've been in this, I, I want to say sector, but I don't think it's a sector. You've been living this life, lifestyle, of looking and befriending and being with people with friends with disabilities. What are some helpful ways of, if I'm someone who goes, I I really want to be friends. I really want to, I really want to head into this area, but every time I do, I'm scared. What is some helpful advice for you to, for, for people who, who, who want to do that? I, I think walk and be slowly. You're listening to Conversations with Earl Grey. I'm Sam and I'm chatting with Rob Nichols about disability, being and humanity. Run a little piece, spending a few days with a friend in. Uh, we went to a retreat over in where where Lash was started in Trolley in France, and I just call it walking slowly in Paris. Um, and and what I found with my friend Greg is that if I slow down to his pace, instead of I I was walking down the street and I found I was about suddenly twenty meters in front of him because I was going somewhere and he was actually intent on enjoying what he was seeing around him and uh, I slowed down and started to walk with him and as I walked with him we started to share what we were seeing he'd sort of he'd see very different things to me Um, but I'd ask him what what do you enjoy about that building and he'd tell me I enjoy the gold plating uh, that makes it kind of shine when the sun hits it and I'm, I'm thinking, that's pretty gaudy. <laughs> I quite like the street scene with the people moving down it, you know. <laughs> and so as we started to exchange these things slowly, um, we, uh, we got into a really good kind of conversation. But then we, we stopped and we had silence too, and that was okay. And I, and I think 
that in all the with all the people I've connected with with um, with an intellectual spirit, and, I, and you can't, I don't want to generalise, um, but there's something about slowing down and actually um, observing what's going on and notice what the person is observing. Notice what Greg's observing or whoever it is. What what are they noticing about what's going on around them? And and be genuinely interested in what's your framework, what's your perspective on the, on the world. I think sometimes we have a very um, we have a very thin lens. I think is the word. Of, of people with disabilities that that we, we 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 paint them with the very thick brush strokes of who they are and we don't sometimes we rid them of personality um, because they need to be cared for um, and we come in there thinking that we know what to do and we take out autonomy and personhood in there and so you're you're advising us to to see personhood again and to walk alongside rather than rather than strong arming yeah rather, rather than, well there's, as, because we're trying to be helpful we're, we become deficit focused what, what what does this person need help with now if i started to think that someone would relate to me in terms of what I need help with, I'd, I'd feel definitely um, underestimated. You know, there's more to me than what I'm not good at. I know I'm not good at things like everything, but there's more to me than that. And uh, But to find that, um, well, it, with all of us, takes time. You know, I... I um, like another instance, I suppose, on that, in that, on that trip was that we walked up to the top of the Eiffel Tower and um, we went to a particular angle and I looked out and I thought, oh, there's that and there's that. And I think I said this to Greg. And, uh, and then I turned, like, let's go and look another part. <laughs> and then I stopped because I thought, no, he's still looking. And so I actually hauled myself back <laughs> and looked where he was looking and just noticed that he was just enjoying observing without describing which, which was an interesting counter to myself. You know, <laughs> I had to point out that I knew what that was and all this kind of stuff, and he was just stopped and enjoying and absorbing the scene and, and remembering it. Not, not remembering it so he could describe it because I, that's not, uh, you know, not his best kind of way of operating at the verbal description kind of thing, but remembering it so he could remember it. It, it reminds me of um, one of my favourite poems by um, William Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. To hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Um, that idea of just in the smallest of things, if we just wait and observe and be... There is there is something in the moment. Yeah, there's an absorption of, of what's happening, and, and I wasn't absorbing; I was bouncing it. 
I was, I was looking and describing it and telling it what it was. And, um, and somehow Greg was just able to be still and observe what, it, what he was actually seeing. And I thought, why, why do I feel this need to describe something that's in front of both of us? <laughs> I wonder whether it comes from our intellectual, cognitive-centric um, society that is about information. Um, whereas if, if, if your if who you are is wired in a way that, that doesn't emphasize memory and, and intellect and, 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 you know, um, you know, you know, cognitive function then what you are doing is actually experiencing the world in a different space. Tell us, uh, I think our, our listeners would, would, some of us might never have heard of Lash. Tell us a little bit about Lash. Yeah, well, it is an hour movement, um, but it wasn't intended to be. And so... Um... The, uh, the man who, who started it all, Jean Vanier, uh, simply um, found himself through a variety of, of um, misadventures, I suppose, found himself visiting, uh, a, uh, visiting a small institution for people. Because he, he was a lieutenant in um, He was in the Navy. The Navy. That's right, the Canadian, yeah. The, yeah. And he was and uh, he professor of philosophy. That's right, yeah. I think I have his dissertation here. On Aristotle, um, yeah. On Aristotle and happiness, or yeah, something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So he came from a completely different direction, was and was actually on holiday um, in in France visiting somebody, and and visited this institution and and went back to his teaching, but felt quite dissatisfied. He, he actually there were two men there particularly who said to him, "Get us out of here." And um, so in the end, he actually went back to France. He quit his job, went back to France, bought this little tiny cottage in this town of Trolley, just to, which is a very small village, and um, which didn't even have plumbing, I think, and um, and invited, uh, in the end, two men to come and live with him in the cottage. Philippe and... Oh, I forget the, uh, yeah, Raphael. Raphael, that's right. Yeah, Raphael and Philippe, yeah. So, uh, so they came and yeah. lived with him and... and um, and then it kind of snowballed. So there was uh, the there was a bit of a scandal at the institution, and they said to to Jean, "Would you take over managing it?" And this is just want to pause you there because we probably don't know what a mental institution might look like. Describe to us that. Yeah, horrible. Um, I mean, I I visited some here in Australia over the years and um, this is this is a smaller one but what you're talking about is um, um, almost like a boarding school sort of setup people have seen the movies of the boarding school so a rows of beds um, this was an old male institution so you know a stack of men all stuck in the same kind of big room and uh, that they would have had probably um, maybe three of those rooms with 10 men in each. I don't know the exact layout of this particular one. Um, 
it would have been a very it was locked a locked institution it's like a prison yeah like a little prison and um and people led a very regimented life work up a certain life hour they were <clears throat> you know poorly fed because there's no much money around they would have had to work out in the garden they would have all had jobs to do during the day um, making the place work and then into bed early and and um and just a very regimented and harsh life. So there, you know, there would probably be no heating, and this is a place with that where it snows in winter. Uh, there would have been uh, uh, sort of no sense of individuality. You know, uh, you often don't even have the same clothes from day to day. You, you know, there's a big all the clothes get taken away, washed, thrown on the table, and you tend to go and grab whatever you can get to put on. I, I remember a friend of mine who I met years ago, and he. Uh, he lives in such an institution for many years, and when we went on a, a visit, this is in, in um, upstate New York, up to Niagara Falls, in the place where we stayed, he took off his clothes and stuck them under his mattress. And I said to the guy, was Bill, who was looking after him, I said, what's that about? And he said, oh, that's, that's what he used to do all the time in the institution to make sure he got his clothes back the next day. Um, and he generally doesn't do that. He lived in a large community there in Syracuse as well. But of course, when he went when he went to somewhere different, some of the old habits kicked back into place. So, very um, a very poor life in so many ways. Poor, poor in terms of stimulation. Poor in terms of relationships. Poor in terms of of, of food and the, the basics. We look at that now and we go that that that's that's horrible. Um, but I I think we could. That's that's genuinely how some people thought this was the best place. Um, and part of that was that you know within our within our own society, there still is a, is a trouble that people who have an intellectual disability are felt to not really know what's going on, and so it doesn't matter. It's, it's assumed that their ability to form deep friendships is just not possible and therefore why do they need friends? Uh, it's assumed that they don't need to be stimulated so why do they need stimulation? So these are assumptions about people uh, flow into how they're treated in, in, in still are in many ways and, and that's really what um, I think Jean recognised was the need for a relationship and probably recognised that in himself as well. So the yeah. same kind of connection. Yeah, continue the story for he us. Those, he had those two men living with him. Um, then when they asked him to manage the small institution, he, um, he managed to lose the front door key. And so suddenly the doors were open and uh, people started walking out the front door and going around the village of Trolley, which caused a little bit of a stir in the neighbourhood. So... Um, and so there had to be some order brought to all of that. But Jean eventually was able to, uh, to get more houses and uh, to arrange for um, people to come. This is, this is back in the 60s particularly, and, and the early 70s, when there was just this sense of uh, a movement, I guess, towards community. And, um, and so a lot of young people said, can I be in this? And they all came, and some of his old students from Canada, and from around Europe all came and, and they started living in those houses in the same kind of way. And so people were just living at that point 
um, without funding, but just finding a way to live together and to finding a way to get you know be able to get food and, and, and manage and all that sort of stuff. And with the so support in the end of the local community, the local community was quite terrified at first. All these people who'd been locked up and they must have had a reason for being locked up were suddenly walking around and greeting them in the street and they didn't look as dangerous as they, as they thought they were uh, but they were very concerned. So in the end they, they, they this acceptance started and, and people started moving into these houses and it grew. It grew at an amazing kind of pace. Um, out of trolley into neighbouring towns and back over into Canada and, and then eventually India was the third country that uh, that where a, uh, a large community was was established yeah and it grew from the nine i think 1960s jean uh, vanier asking two men uh to now i think over 160 communities around the world all based on the i the 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 idea that that um of of friendship and relationship between neurotypical that people who, who who don't have or, or have don't have a visible intellectual disability and those who who do have an intellectual disability um, and, and as you say it's, it's based around the idea of of genuine relationship so there was a a, a push that um, again going back as you're talking about Aristotle and, and relationships there was a push by Jean to sort of say, that it's possible that people who are different to one another um, can have deep friendships. So this wasn't just people with intellectual disabilities can have friendships. This, this was the idea that people who are different for one reason or another can have deep friendships. And so within L'Arche, it's, you know, we often talk about this is, you could talk, you could talk about this is a peace movement. <laughs> This is to actually establish the reality that friendships can exist across fairly major differences. It's, it's Lash is French for the arc. And I think that that carries the idea of so many different, and I, I'm referring to the Noah's Ark, um, but the idea that so many different animals all dwelt in the same place towards to be, to be guided uh, to, 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 in a way, refill the earth. And I think, is, is that right? That the idea of Lash is, is so many different people are here as a symbol uh, to, to tell a world that, that really has hard lines for people with disabilities and those without, that this is possible. Yep, that we can, we can, we can actually share space, share relationships, share share common interests, find common interests. Rob will be back with us in a couple of episodes time as we talk more about Lash, living with people with disabilities in community, and also as Rob and his friends process through moral failure by the founder of Lash. Well, this has been another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. I'm Sam, and I hope you have a wonderful week, and I'll catch you next time with another cup of Earl Grey. <laughs>